Everybody, it is Thursday night, which means it is time for Pop and Schlock. That's a thing that didn't work at all. For everybody who's watching on the Facebook live stream, um, we apologize in advance. Uh, I'm not sorry at all. I'm going to cut your mic. Never mind. <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you for tuning in. Uh, I am your host, Jay Goodson Dodd, author and all around uh, film nerd. I am joined, as always, by my co host, Meredith. And today, before we get started, we want to once again bring up that our uh, grateful host, KPFT, is hosting their annual spring uh, donation drive, and they're trying to raise funds to help this uh, lovely radio station stay in business. They do not accept uh, money from uh, corporate interests, they, uh, re- they rely on depend on the donations and the support of the community. Um, They're a registered 501c3, which means that your donations are tax deductible. Mm -hmm. So that's always good. Um, If you are interested in donating, you can call 713-526-5738. That's 713-526-KPFT. Or you can go to kpft.org and click the Donate Now button. Um, uh, That'll walk you through the process. It's very, very simple. It's very, very easy. Um, There's also, if you go to facebook.com slash KPFT Houston, there's a donate button there. Um, if you get us on the phone, um, please make sure that you want to, uh, that you tell them the name of the show that you'd like to support. If you want to support Pop, uh, Pop and Schlock, that would be great. If there are other uh, programs that you listen to here at KPFT, uh, list any and, all, any and all of them. Just let them know what you listen to, what you love, and what you'd like to support. And really, any amount helps. We also take donations in installments. So, for example, if you want to pay $120 to get the Art Car Ball tickets, you can actually pay for that for $10 a month. Yeah, so I'm, it's one of those things, do what you can, how you can, however you want to do it. Uh, it would just help out this radio station very, very much. And this uh, this place has been really, really good to us. It does a lot of good for the local community. It's a Houston institution for many, many decades, and your support is greatly appreciated. And they're not just good to us. They're good to the community, period. The, the, the amount of voices that are represented on this station is yeah, astounding. Uh, Houston is a very diverse city. And KPFT takes pains to reflect that. We have a lot of hosts here and a lot of shows here that cover issues and voices that tend to go heavily ignored. Yeah, by this, mainstream audiences. KPFT so. does a very good job of giving a voice to the voiceless, and we want to continue to see that grow in the future. So anything that you can do to help out the radio station, please do so. It would mean the world to everybody here uh, at KPFT. Now, uh, on to the bulk of the show. This week we are discussing uh, what was one of the most buzzed about films of last year's festival circuit, which is the film Thoroughbreds. <laughs> That's a little facial bonus for those of you tuning into the Facebook Live. Stay calm. Okay, so uh, this is this is a 
I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and throw it out there. I thought it was a really, really good film. Um, I know that I tried to go in as blind to it as I possibly could. That's the best way to go into um, it, I think. Which is probably for the best. And I came out uh, having a few questions, a few different things that I wanted to discuss. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with the film, it is really hard to describe <laughs> without uh, sounding pretentious. At least that's the way that uh, that I want to it's throw it out there. It's about a couple of sociopathic rich girls who were sociopaths. Yeah, that's and uh, basically the 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 premise is that uh, these two very and I think that it's important that we point out that these are very upper class uh, like. Did did we get a setting for this film? Connecticut. Connecticut. Okay, so it was very. It, I for some reason I kept thinking it was the Hamptons. Um, no, it was uh, Connecticut. You could see it on. It was subtle, but you could see it on the license plates. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a detail that just kind of. I, I guess I missed whenever I was absorbing everything else in the film. But it's definitely a very uh, upper East Coast, upper uh, upper class uh, white girl problem type of type of movie. In that um, these. These two uh, high school girls are very clearly sociopaths, and we'll get into that in a minute. And one of them has a contentious relationship with her stepfather for reasons that are um, delivered mostly through subtext. And eventually, she comes to the realization, or comes to, uh, with, uh, she begins to develop this fascination with the idea of murdering him and how to get away with this plot. Um, so. As I was as I was watching this film, um, I will say that the acting in it is so top notch. It's uh, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. Um, the lead characters are played, and this is mostly a two hander kind of thing, um, played by uh, Olivia Cook. Who I swear to God, what they did is they just took the DNA from uh, Helena Bonham Carter and uh, and Rose Byrne, and they put it in a blender, and then. Out she came, um, because that's looking at her. That's I, I see like that child being made in a lab somewhere, um, and she was excellent as the uh, she starts off the film pretty much embracing that idea of like I'm a sociopath, I have no feelings, and she plays that character very very well. And uh, her counterpoint is uh, Anya Taylor Joy, who uh, kind of had her big breakout in The Witch a few years ago, which was also an amazing film. Turns out in this movie, she does end up living deliciously after all. Mm-hmm. You are related to a goat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she goes from goats to horses. That's kind of a, know, an upgrade there. I know it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird lateral move. Um, we're all going to the barnyard. Um, <laughs> old MacDonald had a farm. There were sociopaths. Um, and the thing about uh, Anya T Taylor Joy is that stop. Um, she's she's an amazing young actress, and she's deservedly getting a lot of roles that uh, I think are going to propel her to a really long and fulfilling career. She's actually going to be playing um, uh, Ileana Rasputin in New Mutants, which is actually an X Men movie that I'm looking forward to. I know I was really excited to see that, and then they ended up moving the thing to next year, so oh. I have to wait for that. And the news that they did it in order to do reshoots to insert a character does not give me um, much confidence for how the film is going to turn out, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, maybe it'll be Negasonic Teenage Warhead. It would be, it might be to tie in to, like, maybe some of the characters they're you know introducing what? She would, in X-Force. She would work in a horror setting. Yeah. She'd work. I'd be okay with that. 
we'll have we'll have to see how that turns out. I know that's going to be a film that we cover at some point next year. Um, just like I know we're going to be covering uh, Deadpool two this year. Well, um, yeah. So. This film is largely built around a couple of different elements. Uh, there are a bunch of different elements that work here, and some of them... Uh, we, we've talked over the last couple of weeks about how important a script is to uh, the overall finished product of a film. If, if your f script is flawed, then whatever comes next does not matter right. at all. Um, that was the problem that we had overwhelmingly with uh, Duncan Jones's film Mute. Um, it was most of the problem that I had with A Wrinkle in Time. A lot of that came from the, uh, the script level. And looking at Thoroughbreds, one of the things that I will say is that the script is solid. It is one of the most tightly constructed pieces of scripting that I've seen in a long well, time. We've discussed earlier about how it started life as a play, correct? Before yes, becoming it, a screenplay? Well, it, did, it, it originally was intended to be performed on stage. I could see it adapting very easily to stage, too, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, very few changes would have to be made in order to turn this into a stage production. Right. It's, it's very... Um, it's very theatrical in its construction as far as the use of space and the way that uh, the focus is largely on dialogue and performance. The limited cast as well. The limited cast. Uh, the only problem that I could foresee in a translation from uh, the screen to stage is that there's so much that hinges on um, basically micro performance, um, you know, small facial tics. Uh, yeah, but if you do it in a black box or off off Broadway or a smaller theater, you could get away with that. Yeah, you 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 could conceivably. I'll I'll. I'll... Cause I mean, I've been to some plays where I've had uh, like the black box at the alley. Okay. That's true. You can you can see pretty well some of the micro expressions that the the actors. It's almost like they're trained to do that kind of thing. It's like I said, I'm not a, I'm not a classically trained actor. I did like some uh, some acting work in college, and the problem that I had with it was that uh, I I can't or I was never seemingly able to go big enough for my director's. Uh, <laughs> to satisfy my director, like most of the time, it's like you're you're playing it too small, which would be great if we were filming this. But it's on stage. You need to you need to be bigger. You need to be more exaggerated. And I'm just like. So what we're saying here is that you're a film actor and I'm a stage actor. That is entirely true. Um, which I mean, you you do improv, so it and that, sketch and sketch. That makes sense. You know, whereas my background, um, whenever. I mean, now I'm a writer. My focus now is on writing, uh, but I do come from whenever I was into the idea of, like, maybe I'll go into independent film. A lot of it was from the idea of, well, I was going to be a director, but I also had an acting background uh, because I feel like those two things kind of help each other. I feel like directors should, like, take some time to learn the process of acting before they become directors. Otherwise, um, you just become like this... Um, I don't want to say... Uh, we, I think it pays to be interdisciplinary, period. Yeah, excellent. You said it a lot better than I could. It's Directors tend to kind of box themselves in sometimes whenever they are focused on just one or two things. And uh, we'll get to the directing on this particular film in just a little bit, but I want to stay on the script. Because as I was, watch as I was watching the film begin to unfold, um, the... The dialogue and the banter between the two young women was so... It straddles such a razor-thin line uh, between, like, hyper-realistic and honest. Um, and one of the things that I really did appreciate is the script is... It's not... An, 
it, as an, looking at it as someone who has acted before, looking at it, that dialogue it would be difficult for anybody to pull off. So the fact that it was pulled off and it didn't come across as... Um, how can I how can I put it? Um, you know how there was enough of a level of heightened reality there to create an unsettling comedy. Yeah. And make no mistake, the film is a dark comedy. Uh, it's as as seriously as it takes the subject matter at hand sometimes like they play it completely straight the further that they get into the film. But it is still along the way the delivery and the way that we the lens that we're viewing the story through allows it to retain that dark comedy it was millennial daria oh my god it was that's that is so that is perfect their delivery was millennial that's that's how i saw it is that it was it was daria and jane for 2017 slash 2018 wow it's daria and jane after they have completely given up wow that's that's actually a really good that's really a really good way to put it um, and I, that didn't occur to me because I was never like the world's biggest fan of Daria. I didn't watch it religiously. I caught like a few episodes whenever there was nothing else on, whenever it was airing on like MTV or something, mm -hmm. but that was never, but you're right. That is, as far as delivery is concerned, that's probably the best way to classify it. See, I see it compared to Heather's a lot, which I can I, see that, but I, 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 didn't I get that at all. saw, I saw way more as edgy Daria. And the, it was Daria after Daria spent too much time on Reddit. The, the the tone that I got from it, as far as like if we're gonna go film comparisons, as far as the the overall tone of what it was presenting, um, I felt like it felt more on uh, it, it felt more on a scale of something like American Psycho. Um, yeah. Oh, I, I see. I saw that way more than Heather's. Yeah. I, I, the closest comparison as far as tone, it, like, will you think this is funny, is if you found the humor and the satire in American Psycho to be, like, on point, then you would like something like this. Um, I wouldn't say it was as pointedly satirical. No, as... no. And we'll we'll probably get into that a little bit later on because you did not like the way the film ended. Not necessarily the climax, but the way that the film resolved itself. I think it should have ended at the climax given the way that it was structured. But and we'll, I'm, we'll get and into I'm, that. I'm going to try not to spoil the ending of the film for anyone who wants. We're going to go spoil the ending. No, we're going to have to to talk about the ending. Okay, fine. You just okay. Spoiler alert for anybody who is listening from this point forward. Any anybody listening from 14 minutes in onward? Um, okay, beware we can, spoilers. We can push it to later in the episode if you want. <laughs> I'm sure it will be. Um, but I, just, I feel like I can't talk about my feelings. No, but talking nobody wants to hear your feelings. Uh, Look, I pay someone 20 bucks a week to listen to my feelings. Who is your therapist? Because they are seriously undercharging you based off of what I know about your personal life. You're my therapist, Jake. Um, I'm. Where's my tip jar? I need a tip jar. The therapist is in. I'm not going to I'm not going to move the football. Um, so one of the things that I did want to bring up about this film and uh Thoroughbreds is a film about sociopaths. Let's throw that out there. And it is a it's a topic that gets brought up a lot in uh, in film, in TV, whatever. Like sociopaths are like this interesting idea to filmmakers and writers. I'm fascinated by sociopathy. And here's the, and here's the thing that uh, that I had while I was watching this film, because every single uh, edition of a film that I see that deals with the idea of the sociopath. It's, they all fit a very, very specific profile. It's the idea that they are they, they lack empathy and that they are unable to process uh, feelings in that particular way and they are hyper-calculating and to the point of they nothing goes wrong for them because they overthink things to a serious well, degree. Well, it's also extremely difficult to diagnose. Yeah. 
my 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 point is as i was watching this film i just sat there and this is my this has nothing to do with a critique of the film but just something that i want for myself i would like for once for someone in Hollywood to make a movie about this type of sociopath, like someone who is clearly capable of violence and just cold, calculating evil, and yet they are not these this, like, hyper-brilliant savant, but instead they're just, like dumb <laughs> i i want them to i want I mean, to why see... don't you make it i'm i am currently writing a screenplay and i'll tell you about it off air because the premise of it is hilarious and i'm not going to have anybody steal okay. my ideas but I, well i mean you just pitched this really wonderful idea and now someone's going to go write it and patent pending patent pending patent pending yeah we, um, we have to now go go run off and copyright it because it's... Well, the, we would be pretty good at writing this because. Well, nobody. Well, I mean, as, well, as soon as uh, as soon as somebody tried to write it, then you could sue them for stealing your life story. Hey, oh, hey, I um, feel things. <laughs> so <laughs> I feel stuff and things. I did laugh when she talked about the crying technique, though, because that's what I do for stage crying. Yeah, pretty much ever anybody who has worked uh, as an actor or doing any sort of drama knows like how to generate fake tears. Um, like, and it's funny because you you probably like you probably have like something that you think about and you know it's like okay this works every single time. Like for me, anytime I stop it. Uh, <laughs> Anytime I had to fake tears, the my go-to was let's let's see if I can do it. let's see if I can do it because I've done it before. Um, if, I, if I need to if I need to generate tears, look at this, I got it. The thing that I do, like I just think about, I think about the ending of Return of the Jedi with the Ewoks dancing. No. And immediately my eyes start to water because I know that the gravitational force generated by an exploding Death Star is going to destroy their ecosystem. No. And, and, and the beautiful murder bears are all going to go extinct. Okay. And scene. Um... Oh, like, that was that was that great. Was, that was I hope great. everybody on the Facebook live feed was entertained by us crying. Oh lord. And legitimately though, I'm going to be emotionally upset about the Ewoks for at least the next 30 minutes. Uh, <laughs> but that But that is that is the the healthier way of doing stage crying than doing recall to childhood dramas. No, don't do but, that. Yeah, never do that. No, don't do that. Any theater never teacher who tells you to do that is probably themselves some sort of sociopath. Yeah. And what do you think it is you can probably speak from experience. What is it dramatically that makes sociopaths interesting on screen and on stage? Like what is it that's so interesting about that particular mindset? As someone I, who sat through all of the seasons of Halt and Catch Fire, you should be able to answer this question. Ah, <laughs> uh, so I come from an Italian American family. Oh, that explains a lot. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I guess, I guess to me, it's like a complete one eighty to what I'm used to because I'm used to, uh, like, having feelings and talking about feelings and sometimes having big feelings. And uh, well, in a, in so I guess to me, it, it's interesting because it's, I think it's kind of ableist because <laughs> for all intents and purposes, sociopathy is still a mental health right. issue. And so I, I think that maybe me saying this, there might be some, and that's something that I should probably unpack off air. <laughs> uh, but I guess to me, it's interesting because, and I don't like 
knowing sociopaths in real life. It's it's something that I'm more fascinated by in in fiction. There's like in a reality, there's like a ninety percent chance that my brother is a sociopath. Hi, John. Anyway, so I guess the fascination for me is at least in fiction is that it's different. Yeah. And I I'm more interested in the psychology side of it because I'm a big psych nerd. Right. So that's that's me. Uh I uh, but you know in in real life I would never want to be and I, I, anywhere I guess, near something I guess like the, that. the thing for me is whenever we're uh whenever we're looking at like sociopaths the whole idea of like oh I can bury my emotions I'm like that's not special. I'm Irish. That's what we do. It's just as John Mulaney said it's like I'm just going to keep all that right here and then I'll die. And that's how we deal with emotions and that's the it's it's not healthy but it's what we do. And so whenever I see people who are doing that I guess I I, I attaching that also to the idea of they are somehow tying that idea of because I am able to distance myself from my emotions, it also means that I am hyper-intelligent, that weird cross-section. And it seems to happen in every single instance of there being a sociopath presented on screen. You've I got, do think like, it's interesting, though, that the vast majority of depictions of sociopathy are about the inherently murderous kind. That too. Which you brought up Halt and Catch Fire earlier, which the entire first season was about sociopathy in the workplace. Yeah. Which had there was no real And I found that to be a more I found that, that to be a more interesting portrayal of sociopathy. It was more than... interesting and it was more realistic because sociopathy is you if you ever encounter a sociopath, they're more likely to be more like what you see in Halt and Catch Fire in terms of just extreme manipulation mm -hmm. versus someone who's actually murderous. And I do think, like we mentioned earlier, there's some ableism. Yeah. I think it's a mental health stigma and inherently painting all sociopaths as murderous. Yeah, it's and, there's something problematic about that, to be sure. Right. But it's also, it makes for interesting drama. And what I liked about this film was the idea that... You, we slowly came to understand that, uh, like, Olivia Cook's character was very upfront about what she was like and what her, basically, what her damage is, as opposed to Anya Taylor-Joy, who sort of maybe was an, was an undiagnosed sociopath, or do you believe that she actually was a sociopath? Or do you think that maybe something, or do you think that it was more of a response to trauma that had that drove her character arc? I think the ambiguity. Amb uh, I don't know how to talk words today. Uh, I think the ambiguity is more interesting. Yeah. For her character, I also, however, thought that her jump from <laughs> the very beginning, where she's like trying to be the the perky nice girl, to Oh, I'm actually a sociopath is very abrupt. It I was, also it, sometimes questioned Olivia Cook's claims of sociopathy because toward the end she does show some semblance of a twisted compassion. It was the yeah. same thing when she talked about murdering her horse mm -hmm. is that in her mind she saw it as a mercy killing because she wanted the horse to die by the hand of someone who loved and appreciated it. Mm -hmm. I kind of sometimes question their sociopathy. Well, part of it, too, and I think this is what was kind of meant to be implied, at least on the script level as a subtext, was that maybe 
both of these characters were lying to themselves about what they were because they're teenagers and you know how much of an idea of your own identity do you really truly have because yeah you know at at what point did this character ever see a trained mental health professional you know we we don't see that she's saying this is what i believe to be true about myself if it may just be a weird, I don't understand what my emotions actually uh, are. I think she had seen a mental health professional, because remember, at the very beginning, she's leaving the the mental hospital. Oh, okay. Yeah, because she didn't go to jail for killing her horse. She right. went to the mental hospital. I'm guessing... And this is not a spoiler about her killing the horse. It's literally the no, first it's, scene. It, it's li- yeah. Well, my, my question is... Is that something that she was that she was told? Is it verified, or is it something that she's saying that counteracts what the mental health professional said? But it's... again, to me, that was the ambiguity was part of the fascination with the characters. I, mm-hmm. I mean, it was probably wrong of us on the front end to automatically say sociopath, because the more we kind of pull, pull it apart, the more we can see yeah. signs that that may have been. So ignore basically the whole first half of this episode, well, everybody. I th- well, I feel like th- I feel like we were kind of playing into the game that uh, the film wanted us to. And we were taking everything at, you know, face value until you start to go beneath the surface, which is the sign of a good film. And this is, make no bones about it, this is a very good film. It's um, excellent. It's it's astoundingly good, especially considering that it is the director's debut film. Um, it's very rare to see a first-time uh, film director nail just about every aspect of what they did. Um, there were, like I said, I mean, you had, you had issues with the way that the film resolved itself, but everything up until the last five minutes, I feel was masterfully directed. Um, the, the way that I looked at it is it's kind of a distillation of a lot of similar entries into this sort of genre. I saw a lot of Stanley Kubrick in it, but I saw a lot of um, sort of late uh, sort of later movement indie filmmakers like uh, there was some Wes Anderson uh, tossed into here as well as far as the way that the film was shot, especially with regard to some of the tracking. I think some of the acting as well, the very affectation laden. The the affectation actually what it reminded me of was um, basically every Sofia Coppola film. that that sort of the idea of the disaffected youth, which has kind of been a trademark of her films yeah, over the it's last... It's a hyper-stylized dialogue. Oh, yeah. So, and, and that uh, who, the, the director is obviously one who has studied film long enough to uh, put something here and make it work. So one of the things that I really appreciated about it, and this is something that's very film nerdy of me, and I don't think people really... This matters to a lot of people who watch the films, but I was astounded by really two things as far as the construction of the movie was concerned. And uh, one of them was the very astute and very mindful use of space and physical space within the film. Um, The very opening of the film where we see Olivia Cook's character going through the house, the long tracking shot, where we establish... It's also mirrored by when Anton Yelchin's character comes up and they start playing Ave Maria. Mm-hmm. And he's... And we'll just... talk We'll talk about Anton Yelchin here in a little bit because... That... R.I.P. I... Oh, God, that makes me so sad. But the the physical space was so well, uh, well established several times because we... The film is masterful in its uh, sort of use of misdirection. Um, and I'll get to that in a little bit as well. But we start off by seeing Olivia Cook go through the house and she basically goes room to room. So we get a understanding of the physical layout of 
the house. This is followed up by Anya Taylor-Joy doing the same thing when she's trying to find her mother. Mm -hmm. uh, she's down in the, uh, the tanning bed. Just we basically see the full physical layout of the house presented to us in tracking shots. You also see uh, when they are watching television. The fact that the TV is immediately situated underneath her stepfather's gym, mm -hmm. and you hear the rowing machine. Oh, that was the second is, thing that I was going to talk about was the freaking sound design. Mm -hmm. The sound design in this film was amazing, just because of the way that uh, and the because the score was very minimalistic, very very minimalistic. So everything that was heard while we were w watching this presentation, it it honed in on what was important so the repetitive sound of the rowing machine or the um the like the the use of um music in the party scene or just well and i think that the rowing machine too was extremely important thematically and character wise mm -hmm. as well and it wasn't it was organically included in this story and not ham-fisted like the horse metaphor that we will discuss later. Uh, yeah, we'll get to that. But it was a constant reminder of the stepfather's intrusion into, into Lily's into, life. Yeah, into Lily's life, right. Now, to what extent he's intruding... That was that's it's, it's mostly subtext. Also, yeah, it's also you, subtextual. You can, and this is one of those this is one of those types of cinema that you can make educated guesses and you can use uh, whatever data you're given or what you can extrapolate from what you see on screen the uh the main contention between the daughter and the stepfather seemed to be only that she did not like the way that he treated the step uh, treated the mother that's the only thing that we see in text is he is verbally abusive towards the mother in one scene and so but uh, there's but that's implied further because for but, one thing yes. like when she finds her mom in the tanning bed she's like the very painful expression on her face mark likes me a little dark it yeah was... it's there's there's little things that you can tell and just the 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 difference in uh in, in lily's demeanor whenever she is interfacing with the mother and her friend versus uh her father there's a definite, like, it, the wall goes up. Mm -hmm. And a wall like that does not go up without good reason. There's a bristling. Yeah. That she has around her stepfather. And and I, I feel like it was intentionally done this way. I feel like it was scripted to be ambiguous so that you are... And this is one of the things I want to talk about, too, is the idea of how important is it for an audience to empathize with the central character? Because... I will be 100% honest, it was hard for me to empathize with any of the characters in this film, and yet at the same time, I found myself interested by them. Well, postmodernism has done a very good job of, of starting to really push villain protagonists Well, I'm, by deconstructing the, the what we think of as a protagonist. What we th I mean, I know that we've had those throughout history, but I feel exactly. like it's, well, because, it's, it's something we've had through history, but I feel like postmodernism is kind of what pushed it to be a much more mainstream idea. Does that make more sense? That, that does make more sense. And, it's, and you're, you're right that it's there's a historical context for it, and it's oddly well-timed uh, because um, in the classroom, I'm starting my unit on Macbeth. Right, exactly. I, so, I mean, it's that's... like you can't, you can't tell me <laughs> that the protagonists... Uh, are there protagonists in that play? Um, but the central characters in that play are terrible, terrible people. And yet we are meant to somehow, um, 
I don't know if empathize is the word, but you are supposed to be invested in their journey. And it's, I feel I mean, like sometimes, sometimes it's the, hard. Yeah, sometimes the investment can still be, well, how's he, how's he going to screw this one up now? Yeah. And so, I mean, was, like, my, or, is what I, or what I call Breaking Bad Syndrome. My, my favorite book of all time is A Confederacy of Dunces. So, I know. I know. That's, um, well, I mean, that's a lot of people's favorite. Yeah, but that's definitely not a heroic protagonist. No, no, like, no, no, no. Uh... I feel like in a lot of ways, Ignatius Riley was the forerunner of today's internet trolls. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you can but, read, you can read or watch or enjoy media with characters that are not 100% virtuous and people who have foibles and who have character flaws. Um, it's it's a little bit harder to go the full the full blown. I want to center my uh, my story around a character who, in any other piece of media, would be the villain. You know, right? Um, because it's a bold move that's not easy to pull off. No, and so this, it's surprising that this film works as well as it did. Because I'll, I'll be honest, at first I was kept at a distance from the characters. I was enamored with the dialogue, but I wasn't sure that I appreciated the characters. And then it, it just slowly trapped me. It slowly brought me in. And one of the things that really did bring me in was the performance of Anton Yelchin, who. God, that is so depressing that we lost him as early as we did, because this film proves that he is truly or was truly one of the great young actors of his generation. Mm -hmm. And I had never seen him play a character quite like this before. It showed a range that I was really surprised by. I shouldn't be because I've always said that he was, you know, one of the one of the better young actors I've seen. Like he was the best part of that terrible Terminator film he was in. But seeing seeing the he he was another character that they just threw in details about him that's like we shouldn't like this guy we should not in any way feel sorry for him or empathize with him whatsoever because he the first thing that we find out about him is that he's a sexual predator he um the character we come out of the gate knowing that as a 25 year old man or some uh, somewhere around those lines he was involved in a relationship with a teenager so he was also he also suffered from like these delusions of grandeur that he was going to become a giant tech guru someday and make billions of dollars yeah, he was he was the idea of it's like I'm you know, I am the new American entrepreneur. The uh oh god, who was it that said I'm trying to remember who originally said this, but uh the temporarily embarrassed millionaire. Mm-hmm. It's I'm it, a terrible person for not remembering it because I, I have it on the tip of my tongue. It's gonna come to you towards the end of the it, the end of the program. It's gonna You're be, just gonna shout it. It's gonna be three o'clock in the morning and I'm gonna be like, Oh Right. And it's so everybody in this film has something that is designed to keep you at a distance. So with, you know, with the two girls, it's the obvious, like, plotting of murder. We don't right. want to get on board with that. But at the same time, um, they are they're our focal point. So we have to be invested in their journey. At the same time, uh, Anton Yelchin, who is, like, set up to be the patsy for this murder and who is... Uh, you know, comes from a background of he's he's a drug dealer and he is a sexual predator. Like, why should we like this guy? And yet, whenever we find him being manipulated, I personally started to feel sorry for him. Yeah, I didn't. Like, I, I, I'm sorry, but like, I I feel sorry for anyone who has a lamp smashed over their head. Nah, I I didn't feel sorry for anyone except the mom. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I felt a I felt a staggering degree of empathy towards the mother because having experience with knowing people who have been trapped in abusive relationships and seeing how that toll that toll that can be taken whenever uh you know someone can't see an easy way out mm -hmm. or be or they're like uh they're not sure of their place in that relationship. Well, but talk whatever. about physicality too. There was so so much defeat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there there was. She portrayed someone who was, um, I don't want to say broken, except maybe in the sense of like housebroken, you know, like a, like the, when it, uh, my uh, Tori, her, her aunt has a couple of big, big, big bulldogs and they are, you know, they're, they're very much alpha dogs, but the, uh, her aunt is the true alpha of the house. And if ever those dogs do anything wrong they immediately cower tuck their tail and try to find a place to hide and these are big scary 100 pound plus bulldogs and it's whenever you see uh the mother in this instance that the body language said a lot yeah the that idea of immediately being on the defensive without being on the defensive it made me wonder to what extent the abuse was taking place mm -hmm. and whether or not Lily was really a sociopath, or was she someone who is deeply traumatized? That's that was, but, but, uh, in denial. Because I mean, she also had previously lost her father. On top of that, mm -hmm. so she lost her father, but then ended up with. We at least know he's verbally abusive. Mm -hmm. But the way that it's set up is that it's ambiguous as to whether or not he's physically. And I feel abusive. like I feel like that was kind of the the point of the script was they were trying to present this idea uh they were trying to present the idea that the how do how do I put this people of her social standing of her status um we are immediately led to believe that she's just she's just spoiled she is just coming from a place of privilege and that whatever her belief is, it's coming from a place of, oh, you don't know your own place. You don't know how good you yeah, got there's it. A lot of, so, there's a lot of why should we feel sorry for Lily? She's a brat. Yeah. But I, I didn't, I'm not going to say that I feel sorry for her, but I do wonder just how much of a sociopath she is i wonder if she could have benefited from some sort of see, mental was, health see that was what i was what i was looking support. at whenever i was watching it was i got the feeling that olivia cook's character was probably a true sociopath and then uh lily was meant to be the counterpoint meant to show how response to a trauma can breed similar tendencies but it's uh, it's a completely different it's like you're going to the same place but you're entering through two, two different doors right and i feel like that was what they were trying to do and i feel like it was trying to play with the expectations of the audience as far as how do we view these characters how do we view people who act in this way and so i found that to be really really interesting it well and can we get into spoiler territory we okay. have we, we have, okay, we have 20 minutes, so we, we should probably okay, we'll start. Go, we'll get into spoiler territory. Okay, right. so, so the crux of the plan is that they are going to hire Anton Yelchin's character to uh, basically stage a break-in and kill their father. They are going to, uh, they're going to leave the, they're going to leave a gun for him, and then the he, he will shoot the father and make it look like a robbery gone wrong. Right. Lily is going is, Which, is going to be at a spa with her mother and actually talking to her about you should leave Mark, you should leave Mark, he's yeah. awful. And Olivia, I believe, is out of 
is out of town, town on on something. And I just want to point out that okay, this is the one thing that I thought was the most genius about this uh, particular script. And I don't know if it was intended when it was written because I don't know at what point they started doing casting. But they had Anton Yelchin was supposed to kill the father. Anybody who uh, knows about dramatic structure knows the idea of Chekhov's gun. There is a literal Chekhov's gun had, in this film that does not go off. That had to be intentional. It had to be intentional. There's no way, like, and because I saw this, I saw this film in an empty movie theater. I was the only one there. And whenever it clicked in my head, I just, I just, ha! In the middle of the theater. It was... <laughs> <laughs> I hope they didn't hear that in the other studio. <laughs> it was one of those things where I could not stop myself. I'm pretty sure that someone, like an usher or somebody, had to come check on me. Because, and I know... I, mean, I would imagine that they have to come check on you because you're you. They don't know me. I never go to that movie theater. I just happened to go because I had a gift card. But that So the premise was that he was going to be the one to do the murder. But... After his dealings with these these girls, he's like, I don't want to get messed up in this. I This is not going to work for me. He doesn't go through with it. He retrieves his gun and runs off into the night. So how do uh how is the mur how is the murder carried out the, basically they decide uh they're the that uh well they don't decide lily decides. lily decides that she's gonna pull a thanos i'm gonna do it myself and she hatches a plan she decides to roofie olivia cook's character and pin the blame on her mm -hmm. which it is the ultimate climax of everything that they've been building for in this film of showing us how desperate in leaps and bounds and careful steps that Lily had become throughout the course of the narrative. And so I was like, this is the only logical conclusion of the film. Yep. It couldn't have ended if the father was not murdered. If it, it, had, not, it had to. If it did not end in a murder most foul, it wouldn't have worked. Now... Here's where here's where me and Meredith both kind of agree about the way the film the way the film. We think we agree on most things about this movie. Period. Yeah, yeah, we we're kind of on the same page. Now I don't have as big a problem with the epilogue or the coda as you do. Yeah, um, I do. But you you can kind of explain why you don't like it. Um, but so the murder itself is very. This is a very strange thing for me to say. It's beautifully shot because you don't actually see it. And you barely even hear it. It goes right down to the sound design that we talked yep. about earlier. Yeah. You. So what you do is, what you see is Lily uh, kind of recants and starts saying, oh, no. She, she, tells, uh, she tells Olivia Cook's character of her plan and says, you know what? I'm actually going to drug you and pin it on you, but I've changed my mind. And Olivia Cook responds by drinking the entire Rohypnol-laden drink. And she says that she's got nothing else to live for, nothing else to do, and nothing else to, to care about in her life. So she's willing to spend the rest of her life in a mental institution as a sacrifice to her friend. So once she passes out, Lily, you, 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 you only see this happening in one take. Lily walks into the kitchen off screen comes back into the living room with a knife in her hand, goes upstairs, and this whole time you're hearing uh, Mark on his rowing machine, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And the camera is only focusing 
on Olivia Cook asleep on the couch. That's it. You hear a thud, and you hear a bunch of thunk, 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 and silence. And Lily comes downstairs, silently freaking out, just like staring. She's covered in blood. She walks up to Olivia Cook while she's sobbing and smears her with the blood to make it look like she did it, puts the knife in her hand, spreads out on the couch and falls asleep in her lap crying. And that's where the movie should have ended. And that's where the movie ended. should have ended. That sh- I 100% agree with you. Now, that's not where the movie ends. No. The movie ends with a coda in which it's several months later and... Um, Lily basically pulls up. She's going to a meeting, and the valet at the restaurant where she's having this meeting is Anton Yelchin. So we find out where he went, and they have a conversation where he's like, I heard what happened, um, and... Lily explains that she got a letter from Olivia Cook's character who is now in a mental institution and basically the letter is please allow me to explain the metaphor of the film <laughs> which I feel like if you have to explain the metaphor then it wasn't a good metaphor in the first it, place. The horse metaphor was so belabored and mm-hmm. so ham-fisted it didn't work. Right. I didn't see what the metaphor was supposed to be. I and maybe it's just because I'm not deep enough to understand hidden meanings and didn't study poetry in the theater enough. Uh, maybe I'm just maybe I'm just dull. But I I thought that the horse through line throughout was just fine as a way of establishing socioeconomic status. Yeah, I really thought so. It, and it's funny because uh, originally when the film was playing on the festival circuit, um, the title was singular thoroughbred. They changed for release to Thoroughbreds. So I'm wondering where along the line the what the expectation of the understanding of the metaphor changed. I'm wondering if that was a if that was a situation where creatively they wanted. There's like we need to go one step further with this. I feel like it's not working. I I mm-hmm. I, I don't know what the justification for See, that. See, and is. I think I think the coda at the end showed an insecurity in the material, saying, mm-hmm. "Well, I'm going to have to backtrack and make sure that the audience understands because maybe I'm not getting my metaphor across." But it comes off as insecure in the material. Alternately, it comes off as condescending to the audience that we can't pick up on it. And Honestly, I, I don't think that... I think it's probably the former more so than the latter because this is Corey Finlay's first movie. Right. Well, my, my, but... my, my, my contention is that that coda over-explains the metaphor, and I don't think that it works. Um, I don't think that necessarily an epilogue or a coda in and of itself is a bad thing. I think that they probably could have done something that would have worked. I, you know, I, but, but I think we already but, know but how it, it's going to end. Exactly. Lily it's, explained how she was going to frame her and that, that Olivia Cook was going to confess. Yeah. Could and it, that Olivia Cook was more than likely, given her prior history of violence, <laughs> would probably end up in a mental institution instead of prison. Right. So we can probably just, uh, it's pretty easy to assume that that's what's going to happen. And that's what did happen. And I think that, so it's the coda is not necessary. Yeah, that's that's the thing. It's it's not necessary in any context. Now, could they have done one that was better and it would have been serviceable? Yes. My my contention is that if you end immediately after the murder, it makes for a more visceral viewing experience. And I think it fits the and your favorite word. Tone. Tone. I think yeah. it fits the tone better. It fits the tone better. 
I feel like the I feel like the the last the last bit of that coda it did kind of detract from it detracts from the emotional weight of the climax. Um, I'm I'm one of those people who, as a writer, prefers for there not to be a heavy falling action following the climax of any given story. That's just kind of how I uh, that's just kind of how I feel. Um, Maybe I'm just resentful about what happened to the Ewoks. <laughs> Do you want to talk about it? No, Do, I really there's don't. There's obviously a lot that you need to unpack here. I, I mean, there's there's a lot that I need to unpack, but now is not the time or the place. Um, I feel like that did undercut the tone of the film just a little bit. And I feel like sticking the landing in anything is always a difficult prospect, especially whenever you have a movie that is as... Uh, well, they had two things working against it in terms of sticking the landing that made the risk even... It made the risk even more rewarding is that you have extremely unsympathetic characters, mm -hmm. which is always a very hard sell. This was a, it was a, um, a tightrope walk of a film. Right. You have a, and you also have a dark comedy, which can also be... I mean... Dark comedy is either extremely good or it's extremely terrible. Okay, let me okay, let me give you a good example of why I think that they should have ended on the murder. Imagine if at the end of There Will Be Blood, they tacked on an additional yeah. scene. Because, that's, that's a perfect... Because that is the closest... Like, that ending mm -hmm. had the same sort of visceral, emotional catharsis that this ending did. And I feel like flowing into another scene, it disrupts the flow. And it kind of... It, it feels like... Um, it's almost like if you're on a roller coaster and you pull back into the station and then you go too far and they have to rewind you back. Yeah. That's what it kind of feels like. So it's it's not... It's not a terrible ending. I didn't hate it. It just, it wasn't what this film needed. And it's the only thing that mars an otherwise what I would consider to be masterful film, especially for a debut filmmaker. I, I think at the very end of the, the coda, and I literally thought it was going to end on the murder. But once mm. the coda happened, I, now there were, there were a couple people behind me in, in my showing, but it was extremely empty. I, my, I just whispered to myself, what? Huh? Yeah, it did. It, it, it felt uh, a little bit out of place, to say the least. Because I honestly don't need to know what happens to Anton Yelchin's character because we no. know he's going to be a failure. Yeah. The, and the idea of, like, seeing him in one more menial job doesn't do anything more to reinforce other than whenever he was working in the nursing home. Doesn't, right. It, Which doesn't, it adds no new information. The thing is, there's no shame in working menial jobs. There's no shame in working in nursing homes. There's no shame in working the front. Mm -hmm. But it was obvious that he... But it was obvious, it was obvious that, that he looked down on the jobs that he had. Yeah, and that and that that was all he was ever destined to do. Right. So showing that showing that it's it's reinforcing a point that we already get, and so the only point of the coda is to basically explain the metaphor, right. which we don't need. And there's nothing ignoble about his work, but he no. saw it that way. Yeah, exactly. It's it's we already got that we already got everything that we needed to know from his little monologue in the minivan outside of the nursing right. home. You know, he, he basically talked about how it's like, you know, take this one step at a time. I, I'm doing this today, but next week I'm going to have a million. Well, they mentioned he only dates teenagers because he's, he, he's too afraid to approach women his own age, mm -hmm. which is pretty pathetic. Yeah. It's, we, we, we get the point. We didn't right. need to revisit that character. Um, it's everything about him is reinforced by the fact that he chickened out of the murder shows that he has no follow through. Right. That was a, that was a thematic statement in and of itself. So we didn't need any more. So that coda just does nothing. 
Uh, that having been said, I wholly recommend the film. Oh yeah. If uh, if you if you are on if you are on the film's wavelength, if you like dark comedies, if you like things like the closest I can say is American Psycho. If yeah. you liked American Psycho, you'll like this. Um, and if you like the uh, if you like the sort of visuals of stuff like Wes Anderson or Sofia Coppola films, this is right along that as far as the way that it's presented visually. Um, we are just about out of time. So once again, I do want to bring up KPFT's fund drive. Um, we are trying to raise money for KPFT. Um, it is a great radio station. It is a great entity. It is a nonprofit organization. Um, and they rely solely on the donations and the support of the community around right. them. We air everything here commercial free, so we're not beholden to commercial entities. Yeah, no, we are no able corporate to, interests, yes. nothing. We are able to dictate our own content. The only thing that the only standard that Jake and I are held to is FCC yeah, the, codes and that we obviously try and work hard to provide you, but they give us a lot of freedom. And they, they give a lot of the hosts here a lot of freedom, which allows a lot of uh, oftentimes marginalized voices mm -hmm. to yeah, have a we, platform. We talked about that at the top of the show, how KPFT is leading the community in terms of giving voice uh, voices to the voiceless. There are several quality programs on KPFT, both on the HD stream where we call home and on the 90.1 FM that just give so many uh, so many different perspectives that are being swept under the rug elsewhere and it's just it's a great organization and they rely on your support your donations to keep uh, keep uh, running and we're doing a we're doing a donation drive um, how to donate you can call 713-526-5738 that's 713-526-KPFT or you can go to kpft.org and there is a button that says donate now click that and you can make a donation right then and there it'll walk you through the process you can also go to the Facebook page it's facebook.com slash KPFT Houston and you can hit the donate button there uh, if you call in and you get somebody by phone, please uh, let them know what shows you would like to support. If you'd like to, sh uh, to support Pop and Schlock, that'd be great. If you'd like to support our friends at Really Not Really, that would be mm -hmm. great. Um, there, there are a whole host of programs out here that deserve your love and support, and we cannot thank you guys enough for the support that you have already given. It means the world to us, and it means the world to KPFT. Right, and we appreciate everything you can. And if you, you can't... If you can't give, which is fine, we are accepting volunteers. Or just put the word out on your social media. Put a link to KPFT. Tell us what these shows here mean to you. Tell us what, tell them what KPFT is doing for the community. There's a lot of ways that you can help. All of them are valid and all of them are appreciated. And uh, if you if you want to give and take advantage of some of the really cool gifts that that are that are available to donors, like the Art Car Ball. Uh, tickets, the art car tickets, some concert tickets that are really exciting. They got some for sticks. Uh, then uh, you know you can pay in installments. You can pay like ten dollars a month for your for ten months, and that's your one hundred. Right. So there's, please there's consider. There's many different ways to donate. Many different options for everybody. Every little bit helps, and we're just trying to do what we can to make sure that this uh, this station, which has been a hallmark of the Houston community for decades, uh, continues to do the good work that they do. Um, I want to thank you for listening. To and this it's tax deductible. Good point. 
good one to end on. I want to thank everybody for listening to the show and the support that you've given this show, uh, whether you're listening on uh, the HD stream, whether you're listening to the streaming option after the fact, or whether you're watching on Facebook Live. Uh, we appreciate the support. It means the world to us. Um, if you want to uh, get in touch with us, you can follow the show on Twitter at PopSchlockPod, on Instagram at, at PopAndSchlockLive. My personal uh, Twitter information is at Am I Right or Wrong? And you can find my co-host at, uh, at Meredith Nudo, N-U-D-O, like Japanese noodles. Well, and it's M-E-R-E-D-I-T-H-N-U-D-O, because there's several different ways to spell Meredith, too. You'll figure it My out. My public-facing Facebook page is <laughs> Hardcore Nudoty, H-A-R-D-C-O-R-E-N-U-D-O-T-Y. Next week, Jake is going to be out. Unfortunately. I know. There's going to be tears in heaven. Do, 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 do. Uh, we will be having comedian Ryan Terry filling in for him. And that's going to be a great show. I will be uh, listening to that live as well if I get a chance. Again, thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.